The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Well, good morning, Orchard. Today we're speaking on the topic, How to Make Wise Choices. And as we do, we're coming to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the end of the chapter, where Paul is now wrapping up about five chapters of discussion on the issues we face in life and how we need to think as we make wise decisions in life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for the promise you've given to us of Christ as our Savior. We look to your word now for guidance in how we lead our life, how we think about the issues of life, and how we now serve one another as we interact with each other in life. We ask for your insight into your word today, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we come this morning to this passage of uh, Paul, he's writing now to this church at Corinth who's got a lot of problems in the church, difficulties they're facing, and they've raised questions that Paul is now addressing. And one question he's addressed repeatedly now for some chapters is how we're to think about life, how we're to act in life, and what we're to do in the, the difficult areas of life, the gray areas of life. So the question now is the lifestyle choices that we make as believers. Now, throughout church history and even in our own day, there's always been questions about how we should think about life, how we should make decisions. One area I remember that's been particularly impactful in church history, in recent years in particular, has been the issue of music. What types of music is appropriate to listen to? Now, we have classical on the one hand, and then we've got pop music and country music and rock music and rap music and all these different musical styles. And there's a lot of people that believe that there's certain types of music that are biblical to listen to, that are okay for a believer to listen to, and certain other types of music to which they're not allowed to listen to or shouldn't listen to because it's, it's bad for them in their spiritual walk. For example, you might think that rock music was the cutting edge, and that certainly is true on where Christians should think about the music they should listen to. But I remember even in a Bible study some years ago with a very well-trained musician explaining to us as high schoolers that in fact even classical music may have a problem. On the one hand, Bach was okay to listen to because his was the music that glorified God. On the other hand, Beethoven was not because Beethoven's music had a syncopation to it, a beat in the rhythm. And that rhythm might make a person feel like they want to move a little bit or dance a little bit. And we know that that leads to bad things. And so Beethoven was thought to be a bad style of music for believers to listen to. And I walked out of that Bible study thinking, what a load of nonsense that is. We all have to make decisions in life in what's important. Now, we're not talking about issues that the Bible clearly speaks to, adultery, lying, stealing, etc. We know that those are prohibited, that the commands of the Bible are clear. So that's not what Paul is talking about. He's dealt with that in many places already. But what he is talking about are those areas of life that we need to think through, how we should believe as believers and how we should make decisions. If you look to the Old Testament, you might remember the Old Testament wisdom literature. That literature is written to help the, the believers of the Old Testament, or the Old Testament era Israelites, think about the issues of life. How are they now to deal with questions in life? The book of Proverbs, Proverbs for example, is filled with Proverbs, filled with principles that they're to think about and follow when they make decisions. And so when we come to the Bible, we know it has a lot of commands, 613 commands to be specific, uh, in the Old Testament as the Jews understood it. But it's not simply a rule book. 
It's not a book written to just give us rules that say do this and don't do that. There's plenty of that, but it's not simply a rule book. If it were a rule book designed to guide all the thoughts and questions we have in life, it would be far too big a book for us to handle because the issues of life are so uh, multiform and multiplex, there's too many of them to think about. Secondly, if it were simply a rule book written 2,000 years ago, it might become dated. There's a lot of things and issues in life today that didn't apply then. They didn't have TV and streaming video. They didn't have these sort of things. So the rule book couldn't cover those sorts of things. And so the Bible isn't a rule book that covers all areas of life. And third, if it were a rule book, you might be able to find loopholes in it. If it were simply rules, it's easy to find loopholes and explanations. For example, if you get on an airplane, there's a warning in the bathroom that says, no person may tamper with, disable, or destroy any smoke detector installed in any aircraft lavatory. The point of that is to make a rule that says if you break this rule, you may be prosecuted. And under the American judicial system, you have to break a known law before you can be prosecuted. You can't break a principle or a, 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 a thought in, in, uh, that others might have. You have to break a law before you can be uh, prosecuted. And so rules we make for kids because they don't know otherwise, but for adults, for mature believers, we live by principles, and that's why we go to Scripture to find the principles of life that really shape our thinking and the way we live. Now, when Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, here where we're at now, and even through this book, he's dealt a number of places in these last four or five chapters with the question of eating. What are we to eat? What are we allowed to eat? What should we not eat? And in fact, this is a question that really plagued the early church not because that was the only area of life that was questionable, but because that was one substantial theological question in the early church. In fact, the book of Galatians deals extensively with who's allowed to eat with others, who are we allowed to sit and dine with, because eating with others was thought to be the most intimate form of contact with our friends and with others. And if you eat with somebody, you're identifying with them. They're a friend of yours. And so this question of eating arose in the early church. Now, we think about eating today. We like to go out to eat. I remember some years ago uh, when I was in California, my family, we were out there uh, living out there and in a church we were a part of. Uh, the uh, older people, the seniors, like to go to hometown buffet after Sunday services. And occasionally, Deanne and I would go out with them to hometown buffet. Now, when you go to hometown buffet, you know you can pay your price at the door and then you go into the dining room and you're allowed to eat anything you want as much as you want. There's no regulations on how much you eat or what you eat. And so the first thing you do is you go to the guy that's carving the roast beef, because that's the most valuable piece of food in the store, and you get your meat. And you know he's standing there with a the chef's hat, but he's not a chef, he's more like a meat guard. But you go get your slice of roast beef, and you hold your plate out, and you try and make, them make a second cut, so you get a little bit more. But you get what you can, and then you finish from there, and you go and you get your drumstick, you get some chicken legs, you get some mashed potatoes and corn, and you fill your plate up. And then when you're done, you go back and get another plate. And then you go over, after you've finished eating your good meal, you go to the uh, soup area to get a soup bowl, only to walk over to the dessert where the ice cream is. You don't want to take a small ice cream dish, but you want to take a larger uh, bowl for the soup. And so you eat as many desserts, three or four desserts or parts of each of them, you go to Hometown Buffet because you want the quantity of the food. You're not so concerned about the quality of it. You like the mass of it. And so you feel at liberty to go and eat as much as you want. Now, there may be occasions when you went to Hometown Buffet where you thought, perhaps I should not today eat 
all that I can. Perhaps I should restrain myself. And there may be reasons for that. For example, if you were to be part of a wedding in the coming months, you might want to start losing weight today. And so you may, you may restrain yourself and your food choices and the volume of it for that reason. You do that because you don't want to look heavy in the wedding photographs. Perhaps you're having a family picture taken soon. You want to slim down a little bit. Or you're going on a vacation to the Caribbean and you want to look good in your swimsuit when you're down on the beach. These are reasons we may restrain ourselves from eating. But when you think of each of those reasons, you see and realize that there's always that self-centered, selfish reason for it. We're doing that. We're restraining ourselves because we want to refrain from ourselves looking bad. But if you were to go to Hometown Buffet, wanting to eat all that you can, and you sat with a friend, and the friend said to you, you know, I prefer that you didn't eat so much today because I'm trying to lose weight, and if you eat too much, that might make me want to eat too much. And besides, you shouldn't do it for your own health. You might feel like that friend of yours did not have a right to tell you to restrain yourself. After all, you paid the price. Expensive at Homebound Tom Buffet. You paid your $15, $16. You feel entitled to eat anything and everything you want. And now you've got somebody sitting across from you telling you that you should restrain yourself. That's what Paul's sort of dealing with here. We know what our rights are. We know what our freedoms are. But we don't like to be restricted in our freedoms by the opinions and thoughts of others. Instead, we want to and prefer to do as we feel is right in our own eyes. And so we don't like to be challenged by others. And so in this illustration of Hometown Buffet, we see here it's somewhat analogous to the issues that Paul's dealing with as he's writing to the Corinthians. He's dealing with the questions that they have. When is it proper? When is it our obligation as believers to lay aside our freedoms? to lay aside our ability to choose and instead restrict ourselves in our choices for the benefit of others. That's what Paul is dealing with in these chapters. Now, the context, again, going back to chapter 8, 9, and 10, the Corinthian believers were confused about their ability to choose in life. He dealt with, Paul did, the question of knowledge. Many people had knowledge. They had grown in their knowledge, and they thought their knowledge as new believers allow them now to exercise their freedom. And in that regard, Paul said, you're right. As a believer, you are now free to eat what you choose. You're not restricted by the Old Testament regulations that restricted the Jewish believers in what they could eat and what they could participate in. Instead, now Paul said, there is a freedom. But he challenged them on their freedom and said that that's not the only consideration we have. We don't simply act based on what we know, but instead we act based on what love requires of us. And so Paul challenges them in this way. We seek to do that which demonstrates love to one another. And so knowledge isn't the only area of life that governs it. And so just because a person knows that there is no gods, for example, that there are no other gods than the one true God, just because you know that doesn't mean you can now go to a pagan a ritual in a pagan temple and partake there. And Paul said you shouldn't do that because others might think that you really are a worshiper of that pagan god. Even though you say you know there isn't one, Paul said you shouldn't do that because they may think you are worshiping a pagan god. And Paul says, even though there are no other gods like our god, there is no other true god, there are spiritual realities and spiritual demons that are in place. And so for that reason, Paul earlier said you should not go to the pagan temple. So Paul is challenging them in this thinking. Now, as we come to chapter 10, verse 23, 
Paul begins with the words, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Now, having read that, that should sound familiar to you, because back in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul said the exact same thing. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And as we think about these chapters and what Paul is doing, today we want to ask the question, how can we make wise decisions? And so we're just going to sort of pick up where Paul was, hitting a few things we've already covered in prior chapters to sort of tie this entire section up. Because as he concludes these verses in chapter 11, verse 1, what follows after that are very different issues concerning head coverings, concerning spiritual gifts. And so Paul is now finishing up this entire discussion on how we think and how we act with one another. So the first question we can ask ourselves is, will my choice be helpful? And again, in chapter 6, verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. When you ask the question whether something is helpful, you're asking the question, what is my objective in life, and is my choice and my action going to get me there? What is my objective in life? Fundamentally, we all want to live a spiritual life, a godly life, to the best that we can. It's something like making a long journey. The Christian life begins at a place, and we're looking to make a journey in which we grow spiritually throughout our lives as we reach our destination. And as we do that, we need to begin with taking along some supplies. We want to begin with taking along supplies that will help us on our journey. And so if we were to set out on a three-day camping journey, we might take along three days of supplies of food and water. We might take along a few extra days of food. We take along matches and a camp uh, tent and everything else that might go along with that. But if you were setting out, like Lewis and Clark did, on an expedition that might last for many, many months and a journey that would go in places you didn't know, you couldn't take along enough supplies. So you had to also take along a skill set. You had to have skills in place to take care of yourself on the road. And that's something like these principles that Paul's talking about. The principles of the Old Testament wisdom, wisdom literature. The principles that Paul's talking about here. He's saying, I can't explain everything to you now, but think along these principles. Think in this way. For example, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony was started in Jamestown, from England, they set out with a number of people that were aristocrats, that were highly educated. They could read and translate the Greek languages of Plato and others. But when they got to Jamestown, they realized they didn't have enough people on board who knew how to weather the cold winter that was coming, to build the housing that they needed, to hunt the food that they needed. They came without the necessary skill set to survive. And so as believers, we need the necessary skill set to make decisions in life that make a difference. The great commentator F.B. Meyer once said, thousands of Christians are like waterlogged vessels. They cannot sink, yet they are saturated with so many inconsistencies, worldliness, and little permitted evils that they can only be towed with difficulty into the celestial port. If you were to run a race, and we think now of the Boston Marathon, which is normally run in April, was then moved to September, and then yesterday canceled for good this year, but the Boston Marathon, where 50,000 runners all line up. And if you saw lined up on the starting line a person who's wearing boots and a cowboy hat and blue jeans, you might think that that guy has no chance of winning. So you might ask him, why are you here? Why are you wearing that? And they might say, well, I'm a very experienced runner, but today I want to run in these boots. I want to run with a cowboy hat and the blue jeans on. 
That would be a poor decision if you really thought they were trying to win the race. You would say to them you should put on tennis shoes that are light and airy, a thinner shirt and uh, thinner shorts so that you could run with greater freedom. You see, we don't want to take in life any undue burdens as we make these decisions. And so Paul is now dealing with that. We don't want any undue burdens in our life. And so we have to make choices that are helpful to our destination. Will my choice be helpful? Secondly, again in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, does my choice enslave me? He says there again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, we should not be enslaved to anything. Now we've seen this already, but it's like the story of an eagle uh, that flies with his great majestic wings, is able to soar, who on this day decides to land on a small sheet of ice traveling towards Niagara Falls. And the other animals are crying out to him, you need to get off that. The ice block is going to fall over the cliff. And the eagle knows I've got the wings to sustain it. Just before the ice falls over the cliff, over the falls, I'll be able to fly away. And as he approaches the falls and the ice begins to descend, at that moment the eagle realizes that his talons are frozen into the ice. Now you can figure out the illustration from there. In life, when we make choices that enslave us, they can drag us down to our doom. And so, again, Paul warns us against anything that dominates us. In chapter 8, he dealt with the issues of a good example. And for this reason, he said, we make choices about the food we eat based on what is a good example. He says, I'll make sure that I, uh, that, uh, he says in verse uh, uh, 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And again in verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I become uh, a stumbling block to my brother. And so Paul is looking always at the example he makes. And so he asks the question, will this choice be a good example to others? If people see me doing this, is it an example that may mislead others? And so those are the first three questions we may see from what Paul has talked about already. Now, in verse 23, we come to this passage, and the question is, does my choice edify? The word edify is related to the word, word edifice, which is a building. Does my choice build up? Does it edify? Beginning in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In life, we want to do the sort of things that build us up, that grow us in life, that give us greater spiritual abilities as we age in our spiritual growth. I know sometimes when we're young, we feel compelled to be radical in our faith. I know a few years ago, there was a book published called Radical, and in it, the author, David Platt, called believers to make radical choices in life, to make great sacrifices. And many followed that. But even as Platt grew older and began to look back on its effect, he realized that in the idea of radical, even though we want to stay true to the word and make wise choices, we can overdo even some of that. In life, we have to also have some moments of recreation. In fact, the word recreation itself, I would tell you, comes from the com combination of recreation. Recreation is designed to recreate us, to renew us, to make us uh, new again, to give us new life. And we have to have that. We have to have times of rest. And so in our pursuit of things that build us up, there's also a place for recreation. Now we might think of amusement also. Amusement, the word muse, like a museum, comes from the Greek word which spoke of the muses. And in Greek mythology, there were the muses that inspired the arts whether it's music or poetry 
or astronomy. The muse has inspired this sort of thinking. And so a museum is a place to inspire us, inspire our thinking. And so that's why we go to museums. The word amuse is a negation of that. It means no thinking. It means just to be flat out entertained without our thinking, without our own participation. Now, we might think that we need some of that, and we do. We need to simply have a time when we lower the thinking and lower that and enjoy the moments of life. But Paul here is dealing with all of this, and he says, in our life, we have to make wise decisions that build up. But there are essential things we must do and non-essential things that are optional. And so that's kind of the place that he's dealing with here. And again, he says, all things are lawful. Now, he's not saying that himself. He's quoting them. The Corinthians were the ones who said, all things are lawful. I can do as I please. I can live as a libertarian. I can make these choices and not be obligated by the uh, uh, dictates of others. And so they were saying, basically, because I'm a believer, I can make these choices. And Paul is continuing to remind them that not all things are helpful and not all things build up. Instead, we have to look to who we are and do the things that actually do build up. And so we think not simply through the lens of permissibility, but through the lens of love. Don't simply look at life and ask, what am I permitted to do and I'll do whatever I'm allowed to do without the consequences of others, but instead look through the lens of love asking, if I engage in an activity, will others, believers or unbelievers, in some fashion be harmed by it, by my example, by my testimony, lead them astray as well. Now, Paul does this by going back again to the argument in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And this is, is the idea that our neighbor matters most. It's not our own choices that govern our own life uh, to our own uh, desires that's most important, but it's our choices that affect others. That's where we have our problems. And he gives two examples in verses 25 through 27. Two examples. First in verse 25. Two examples of these non-essentials. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What Paul is saying here is, yes, you're free to eat meat. It should not affect your conscience. And why? Because as Psalm 24 says, God is one who created all of it. And it's not affected by the fact that it may have been sacrificed to an idol. You are free in that regard. And then verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So if an unbeliever comes to you as a Christian and says, come eat with me, Paul says you're free to go and you're free to eat whatever that unbeliever sets before you. And you don't have to inquire whether or not the meat you've been served came from the meat market that was filled by the meat sacrificed in the temples of the pagans. That's okay to eat. You don't have to ask about that. Now, there were uncertainties in the minds of many Christians because as Christians, many of them came from the Jewish world. They were Jews first who now believe in Christ. Christianity was still seen as a sect of Judaism. And so Paul is now saying that even with that, you're free as a Christian to make those choices. You're not obligated to those certain dietary restrictions of the old covenant. So you can make these choices. But the Christian must do so with a certain sense of, of love. We have to be concerned about others. And many were not. They were, they were not concerned about others. So although you're free to eat from the meat market, you have to look out for the others. And the reason you can eat freely is because God created it, and that's why we give thanks. We give thanks because 
we're eating what God has made. But is it permissible for Christians to eat with non-believers? That was an issue in the early church uh, that, that plagued the early church. And of course, there's two considerations here. Why would they think that they shouldn't? First of all, the Jews considered Gentiles to be unclean. And so Jews did not eat with Gentiles. And that was that means of isolating, separating, maintaining your own covenant community and not coming into contact with those that may be ritually impure and thereby causing you to be impure ritually. And so there was many Jews who believed they should not eat with Gentiles. Now, when the early church begins, as Acts 10 and other places show us, Paul, Peter, early on said, yes, you should eat with Gentiles. We should all enjoy one another because we're all part of the people of God. Another consideration is that there's no way for a believer to know whether meat offered to them was sacrificed to an idol. And so Paul says that shouldn't matter. We don't need to worry about where it came from or where it originated. And so we have these two examples. Now, as he continues on through verse uh, 28, he says, but if someone says to you, and he's now going to give this parenthetical sort of discussion, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for the, uh, and for the, con uh, the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. And so there's this someone, Paul says, who he calls the one who informed you. We have this informant. And he says, this meat's been offered to idols. What should you do? Paul says you shouldn't do it. Now, the first question we have is, who is this someone? Paul's using the illustration of being at dinner with a non-believer. Others are there. And while you're ready to eat, just before you are, as a believer, and they know you're a believer, before you partake, someone in the room says, you know that meat was offered to an idol. The someone here is probably a non-believer. And the reason is, is because the word used here for this meat that's sacrificed is the word that would have been used by a pagan. Christians had a word, Paul had a word that talked about this meat as idol meat. And they used the word idol in that phrase, idol meat. This word is the word that would be used by those who were pagans themselves. And so this someone who's making this uh, observation and pointing this out to you is, it looks like a pagan, is an unbeliever. So why then is a the question, why then does Paul say you should then not eat? Now, he's used these two examples and he makes his point again that we should not partake of this meat if a pagan points it out to us because of his conscience, because we don't want to offend that person. So this informant that tells you this is not doing it as a test to see whether or not you will, but instead this informant is doing it to help you. He's doing it to make sure that you don't do something against your conscience. And so he's informing you to help you. He's doing this based on his own uh, uh, moral base, wanting to help a believer. And in that case, Paul says, you should not eat because you don't want that person to then be led astray. And so the non-believer, feeling some sense of moral obligation, is warning you, don't eat of this meat. Then Paul says you don't. And the problem is that we're often constricted by what other believers says. Paul says if some other believer has a problem with it, you're still free to eat as long as you don't harm your brother. But if a non-believer points it out to you, you're better off not doing that. And again, he says, for why is my liberty being determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Why? I should not partake of it because it might offend this person and keep them from the gospel. 
And that brings, brings us to our fifth point in verse 31. Does my choice exalt the glory of God? Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you eat, you can eat a lot of things. You can eat anything, Paul says. Whatever you drink, he now adds this because what goes with eating is, of course, drinking. Whatever you drink. And then he says, whatever you do. Now to encompass whatever choice in life we have to make, whatever aspect of it there is, whatever you do, he says, do all to the glory of God. And that is to be our ultimate driving force as believers, to do only that which glorifies God. And so our behavior, our actions matter, and that's what motivates us. And then the final point, verse 32, does my choice open the door to the gospel? As a believer, we have to ask ourselves this question. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Give no offense, he says. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul makes this general statement, give no offense to Jews, to Greeks, or to the church of God. Now, when we think of the word offense, we typically think of hurting somebody's feelings. But Paul wants us to think further than that. It's not simply a matter of not hurting somebody's feelings, but it's doing something that gives them a stumbling block, that gives them an offense that may keep them from the gospel. Because as he says, he does everything so that they may be saved. That's what motivates Paul. The freedoms they practiced had to be done for God's glory. And they had to be done for the sake of the gospel. Because we don't want to participate in some activity that in the end prevents somebody from becoming a believer. And so we make choices in that regard, and that's a demonstration of our love for others. And so says, uh, Paul says, let's be clear from the beginning that uh, uh, Paul wasn't trying to be a people pleaser. He says he's trying to please people, but that's not what he's trying to do. He's made plain in 1 Thessalonians and Galatians also that he's not seeking the approval of men, but of God. But in everything he's seeking to do, he's trying to do that which glorifies God. And it's God who would have Paul restrict his choices, restrict what he does for that reason, so that they may be saved. Now, we live in a culture which tells us to do whatever it takes to make yourself happy. Take care of yourself first. Live uh, to gratify your own desires, your own needs. And many Christians carry that in their way of thinking, to please themselves, to do that which gratifies themselves first. But Paul says we have to limit ourselves. And if you want an example of how to live, he says in chapter 11, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. Paul becomes for us an example that we can follow, one we can look to, to see his pattern of life, his way of conduct. And so he doesn't state that from some place of pride or of his uh, arrogance. Instead, he states that as a simple point that he's following Christ in every way he can, making sacrifices, and he asks us to do the same thing. Now, as we draw some conclusions from this passage, there's a couple of truths we can make a point of. First of all, believers in Christ really do have a freedom in non-essentials. In non-essential areas, there are freedoms that you and I can make, choices we can make, that are not regulated by the dictates of other Christians. We do have freedoms. But truth number two is that personal freedom is not the greatest concern for the believer, but instead doing everything to glorify God and to create a path for others to become a believer. 
and not laying a stumbling block for them. Now, as you think about people that challenge the way believers live, the choices we make, it's often, generally, it's not from immature believers. Often it's from mature believers. It's from many people who've lived a spiritual life and they've grown down a path, but they've decided to make a list of things that are prohibited, and they now want to put that list on you. And so often we have these conflicts, not with immature believers, but with those who are supposed to be mature, those who are well-grown in the faith. And we think about these areas of absolutes and non-essentials. We can think of it in this way. There are national borders and there are state borders. National borders are those borders in the Christian world that define what core Christian belief is. And if you don't maintain those beliefs, then in fact you're not a Christian. There's core beliefs that matter most, and we fight over those. We separate over those. And so some of those might be a high view of what Scripture is. God as a trinity, Christ as our Savior, Jesus having made that personal sacrifice as our only Savior. These are core truths that matter most. And so we do fight over those. We do dispute with those. We argue intelligently with others over those sorts of issues. Those are like the national borders that we do fight over, we protect. But then there are state borders. Now, state borders, we can disagree with the state nearby on how they govern themselves over how we govern ourselves. We may disagree with our government and like a different state's government. But either way, there are still states within the same country. And so these are non-essential issues. The borders aren't locked down. We don't defend those borders. And these non-essential areas might be things like uh, worship styles, the style of music that's done in church. You or I may prefer different types of music. Some prefer classical. Some prefer something more pop and modern. Some prefer a different type of sound. Whatever it is, we have our different preferences. But Paul would say to us, don't force your preference on others and don't separate over something that's not essential. Bible translations is one. There are those who believe that the King James Version is God's inspired word for the English-speaking world, and there should be no other translations. Others prefer the Living Bible, the New Living, the NIV, the NASB, or the ESV. We all have different preferences for different reasons. But Paul would say, choose a a version that's faithful to God's word, but more than that, follow it. Live by it. That's what matters most. The way we dress, certain clothes. I know certain uh, believers think that uh, even a girl, a high school girl at camp should still wear a skirt and never wear blue jeans. And so some girls go to camp wearing skirts only. Now, if that's your thing, then make that your thing. But you can't force that on others. And you should not condemn others who choose to wear blue jeans instead. These are the sorts of non-essentials that Paul's talking about. Even if we think about the, the, uh, the viceless of smoking, drinking, and dancing, the historic viceless of the Baptist. Smoking, you shouldn't smoke. Drink, you shouldn't drink. And dance, you shouldn't dance. Well, maybe that's true. But Charles Spurgeon smoked a cigar uh, uh, and a pipe. Martin Luther drank beer in Germany. And even King David danced. And so there's these sorts of areas where we may draw our own conclusions, but instead of fighting over those, we should say there's freedom for others to make a choice that's different from ours and not divide over those things. The point that Paul is making is that we need to love one another and make the choices that demonstrate that love for each other. These choices in life matter. But what matters most is we make choices that support each other, that build up one another, and that don't lay a stumbling block 
in front of another person, particularly in front of a non-believer. There are too many believers who live a life in such a way that non-believers look at you as a Christian and say, if that's what a Christian is, they don't look any different than what I, uh, what I do. They live the same way I live. They're no better than I am. There's no more difference in their life than in my life. So if a non-believer can look at you and say, there's nothing in your life that reflects anything different than the life that they've chosen to lead, you may be living in such a way as to lay a stumbling block in front of them. And so Paul's admonition to us, each of us, is to make a choice that glorifies God and that serves one another in love. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look to your word, we ask that you might inspire each of us, inspire each of us in our heart and life to make choices that build up one another, that demonstrate love for each other, that's done to glorify you, and that we may lead a life in such a way that creates a path for a non-believer to see that you are our great Savior and the Christian life is something different. So, Lord, we ask that you might give us this insight and this strength. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.